remain standing for for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from the end of John chapter 4. Give your ear to the gospel of our God. Now, after the two days in Samaria, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed. And his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did. When he had come out of Judea. Into Galilee. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father we believe in your son Jesus. But help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith through the power of your spirit working in us. We ask this for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. The title of this sermon is Tried, True, and Praying Faith. And the focus of this sermon is really going to be on the tried and true part. Another way of saying that is that this sermon will focus, most of this sermon will be about the first half of your outline, if you're following that and taking notes in the outline that I provided for you. The nature of genuine faith is that it does not remain stagnant. If you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, then your faith will be growing and changing, maturing, Developing. Faith is a living and growing thing. It grows and develops over time as a spirit works in you, as Jesus tests you and pushes you 
saving faith is always getting deeper and wider and longer and higher. It's always moving upward and inward toward God, toward righteousness, toward greater understanding. Saving faith is not static. Genuine faith in Jesus does not become complacent, self-satisfied. It doesn't become satisfied with the status quo. Real faith will always be growing faith, moving from one degree of glory to another. Now, the natural inclination of every human heart is to hate God and to trust in self. And so when God saves a person and gives that person faith, he still has a a battle to fight. There's still a lingering gravity pulling us down, keeping us from moving upward. So when, when God saves a person and gives that person faith, he still must resist constantly spiritual sluggishness. All of his life, he must go toe-to-toe with the lingering laziness that remains in the heart. God's people must always strive toward greater maturity of faith. Spiritual stagnation is not an option for the people of God. Stagnant faith is, is actually a dying faith. Your faith is either living or dying. It's one of those processes. It's either flourishing or failing. It's either thriving on the vine or withering on the vine. And if your faith is dying, you are in a dangerous place. This passage at the end of John 4 tells the story of one man's journey of faith in Christ. And we'll see that it's a journey of genuine faith as opposed to the people around him. Not all faith journeys are made out of genuine faith. Many of the people who followed Jesus did not stick with him to the end. They were only interested in Jesus' signs and wonders and power and glory. They didn't love Jesus or truly trust in him, and so they didn't persevere to the end. Thousands followed him at one point or another, but very few remained with him at the end. But this nobleman from Capernaum, whose son was sick at the point of death, it says, I don't think he is one of those false believers. His faith turns out to be real. And because he belongs to God, as the Samaritan woman did, and as the Samaritan people did, who turned to God, because he belongs to God, Jesus tests the genuineness of his faith, and then he strengthens the genuineness of his faith. This is how Jesus brings his people to mature faith. It's how he brings you and me to maturity of faith. He tests the genuineness of our faith and he strengthens the genuineness of our faith. That's really a summary of the Christian life. 
Jesus tests the genuineness of your faith. And he is always strengthening the genuineness of your faith as he is testing it. Moving you from one degree of glory to another in your faith and your faithfulness. Now before we jump into the story of this nobleman from Capernaum. We need to consider verses 43 to 45. Now, in some of your Bibles, it might actually be in a different section with a heading in between 45 and 46. But I really think this belongs. Of course, there weren't headings in the original. So it all is all connected anyway. But I, don't, I think the heading may keep us from seeing the connection here. Now, this these three verses, 43 to 45, contain a couple of strange and difficult things to understand. But... But once we understand them, we'll see how they set the stage for 46 to the end of the chapter. 43 reminds us that Jesus stayed in Samaria for a couple of days. They asked him to. He did. He shared the gospel with them and they were turning to faith in Jesus left and right. Now, remember. That he, he left there and went to Galilee, which is where he was from, his hometown of Nazareth was in Galilee. So Jesus is returning to his old stomping grounds. He's going back to the part of the country where everyone knows him and his parents. They watched him grow up. And that what and that's what makes verse 44 so odd. It says for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country as if that's why he went back. Now, if a prophet has no honor in his own town, his own homeland, why is Jesus returning to the part of the country that he grew up in? In fact, it's even weirder than that. Verse 44 doesn't just say that he went back to his homeland even though a prophet has no honor in his own country. That would be odd enough if he were saying that. What's really strange about this verse is it says that Jesus went back to his own homeland because a prophet has no honor in his home country. So verse 44 is an explanation of verse 43. That's what that four is there for. So Jesus went back to his homeland. Why? Because that's where a prophet has no honor. Now, some translations, because of this difficulty... Some translations take out the word for and maybe put now or something like that. And maybe they even put it in parentheses like it's just a, a side statement. But it's not. The Greek of verse 44 begins with for, which means because Jesus went to his homeland because a prophet has no honor there. And so the real, the real question is, why does Jesus intentionally go back to where people do not understand him, do not understand his message or honor him. Well, that's the whole reason Jesus came to earth in the first place. He didn't come to get honor. That wasn't the mission that the father sent him on. He came to die. Remember back in John 1 verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. That was the reality that he knew he was stepping into. So verse 44 is strange to us. It's strange to think of going somewhere precisely because you're going to be rejected or only loved because of your miracles and then rejected. 
but it's not strange to Jesus, and it's not strange to the book of John, and it's not strange to the Gospels as a whole. Rejection is why Jesus came. It was part of his plan from the beginning. Jesus came to offer himself, and he he came to keep offering himself to his own people, even though the overwhelming majority of them would not receive him with genuine faith. And even though in the end, it would get him killed. You see, Jesus didn't come from heaven to earth, even though he would get killed in the process. He came to earth precisely because he would get killed in the process. It was part of the plan, part of God's eternal purpose. And this passage illustrates that in its own way. The verse 45 is also odd. After verse 44, verse 44 says that Jesus went to Galilee because he was not honored there. And then verse 45 goes on to say that Jesus nevertheless was honored there. Okay, so it's keep all these twists and turns. What do we do? When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him or welcomed him. What's going on there? Now, we know already in John's gospel that when, we, when people are receiving Jesus or believing in Jesus, it's not always genuine. So we can we put that in the back of our minds. Let's look at the flow here. Verse 43 says Jesus went to his homeland of Galilee. Verse 44, he went there because he would not be honored there. Verse 45, therefore, when he went to Galilee, the Galileans honored him. They welcomed him. How do we make sense of this? How can John say in essence, a prophet has no honor in his homeland, therefore the people in his homeland, homeland welcomed him. The answer is that the reception of the Galileans was not a genuine reception. John is using irony here. When verse 45 says that they received him or welcomed him, it means that they did not genuinely receive him. There's an irony that we're supposed to see. It's like he's putting quotation marks around received or welcomed. They received him in the way the people in John 2.23 received Jesus. And you remember that Jesus did not commit himself himself to the people who received him back in John 2.23. Because their faith was sign-based instead of Savior-based. And the same is true of these Galileans. Their reception of Jesus is based on the power of Jesus rather than the person of Jesus. And the rest of verse 45 makes this clear. The Galileans received him. Why? The next phrase. Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had gone to the feast. That's the reason for their reception of him. And John has already told us that is not the kind of faith that Jesus entrusts himself to. They didn't receive him because he was their savior and their God. They didn't receive him because they were willing to take up their cross and follow him. They received him because of the signs and the wonders that he performed in Jerusalem. He'd only performed one in Galilee. John's keeping track of the Galilean signs. But many of these Galileans had gone to Jerusalem for the feast And they'd seen him there. 
And on the basis of that, they welcomed him back to their homeland. That's our boy, the wonder worker. But again, we know from John 2, that's not the kind of faith Jesus is looking for. That's not genuine faith. Jesus doesn't trust it. John 2, 23 and 24 say. The false faith of these Galileans is fundamentally different from the genuine faith of the Samaritans in the previous passage. I know it's been a couple weeks since we looked at that, but the previous passage, you remember the Samaritans, where Jesus spent two days, they were coming to faith in Christ. But it's not because Jesus was performing signs there. He didn't perform any miracles in Samaria that we're told of. And the focus is not on signs there. The focus is on his word. The text highlights that. Look up at verse 41, the previous passage that we talked about two weeks ago. It tells us why the Samaritans were putting their trust, their faith in Jesus. It says many more believed, many more Samaritans believed. Why? Because of his own word. You see how John is contrasting the faith that's based on the word in Samaria and the faith that is based on the sign on his signs in Galilee. Not because of his signs, but because of his word, they trusted. And when they heard the word of Jesus, the very next verse says, I think it's verse 42. 43, they knew that he was the Christ, the savior of the world. But in Galilee, back up, back in his homeland, they only welcomed him because of his sensational signs. They weren't Jesus lovers, they were sensation mongers. And what about you? Do you trust in Jesus Because when you hear his voice, you hear the voice of the good shepherd. And you are compelled to believe him and to follow him and to love him as your savior and your God because of who he is. Or have you welcomed Jesus into your life the way these Galileans welcomed him? Do you only believe in Jesus and love him Because of what he might do for you. Or what he's done for you lately. And when Jesus doesn't come through, how do you respond? Is there love lost when Jesus doesn't do it your way? When he doesn't provide what you really want? Think about something in your life that God has not given you. Maybe there's more than one thing. You've asked for it, but he hasn't come through. Perhaps you've spent a lot of time wondering why God hasn't given you this desire of your heart. It seems like a good and godly desire. You know Jesus is able to fix the situation. You know, you know he's able to bless you and to make you happy in this way. And you have no idea why he has chosen not to. All of us are in that situation to one degree or another. All of us have situations just like that. Whether you think about it in those terms or not, each of you wants God 
to do something or some things that he can do and equally that he's chosen not to do. And your response to this will tell, will tell you whether you are more like the Samaritans who believed Jesus because of who he is or whether you're more like the Galileans who received Jesus because of his powerful displays and cool signs. Is your faith savior-based or sign-based? Do you love the power of Jesus more than the person of Jesus? There are two surefire ways to know if your faith in Jesus is is savior-based or more sign-based. First, if your faith is based on the person of Jesus rather than merely his displays of power, then you will spend time with Jesus. You will spend time with him because you love him. You love him as a person. So how much time do you spend with Jesus? Now, you may not think that you're upset with Jesus for not doing certain things, not performing certain signs or wonders in your life. You may you may not think that you are resentful, resentful toward God for withholding blessings from you. You may tell yourself that you're really just upset with certain people or certain circumstances. You tell yourself that you're not holding anything against God because that would be wrong. But if you don't talk to Jesus, if you don't spend time listening to his word, if you don't spend time praising him and adoring him and talking to him about the wondrous things in his word, then it can only mean that you don't trust him. Prayer is how you exercise your trust in Jesus. Calvin said prayer is the exercise of faith. And prayer is how you express your love for Jesus. How much do you love and trust Jesus? Spending time in God's word, reading it, hearing it, meditating on it, singing it. Is what sheep do. Christ's sheep love to hear the voice of of the good shepherd because they love the shepherd when they hear it it produces faith just as it did in the samaritans and as we'll see in this nobleman from capernaum second if your faith is based on the person of jesus rather than merely his displays or primarily his displays of power then the main sign that you will focus on is the cross The greatest sign that Jesus ever performed was dying on the cross and rising from the dead three days later. There's no blessing you could ever receive from Jesus or want from Jesus that is greater than the gift that you've already been given. The gift of his death and resurrection for you. Do you love Jesus for this sign, this wonder, this miracle, most of all? How often do you contemplate the cross? 
Do you think about what Jesus has done for you on the cross as much as you think about what he has not yet done for you? How how much of your affections are centered on what Jesus did for you on Calvary? Does the cross dominate your heart and your mind? Or do you go days without thinking about that miracle? Jesus has performed for you the greatest sign and wonder of all. He has died for your sins. He has rescued you from eternal condemnation. How much do you love this truth? How central is this truth in your mind, in your heart? Well, verses 43 to 45, as I said, set the stage for verses 46 to 48. Let me read those verses again. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he, the nobleman, went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then verse 48 makes explicit what we've been seeing. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people, you all, see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, Jesus is talking to this father from Capernaum. But he's addressing all the people. The you there is plural. That's why the New King James Version puts you people. The people's italicized because it's not in there. But the you is in the Greek plural. And we need to see that plural you. He's talking to all of them. These Galileans, he's indicting them because they hunger and thirst for signs more than they hunger and thirst for Jesus and his righteousness. And so it's as if Jesus is saying in verse 48, you are sign seekers and wonder worshipers. You welcome me and say you believe me, but your faith is like the faith of the people in Jerusalem back in John 2, 23. It's not real. It doesn't honor me. It's not the faith that that sees me and treasures me as your savior and your God. But what do we do with this official or nobleman from Capernaum? Is he part of the crowd who received Jesus only because of his signs? Is, is this man just another sign seeker? Or is he a savior seeker? Does he love Jesus or does he love Jesus' power only? That's not clear right away. If the story stopped at verse 48, we might wonder where this man's faith was headed. But since we do have the rest of the story, we know that this man's faith is genuine. The difference between genuine faith and false faith is that genuine faith endures to the end. And false faith does not. Hebrews 3.14 says that we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's only one way you can make sure that you have come to share in Christ. Hold on to your original confidence firm to the end. In John 4. We see the nobleman from Capernaum holding on to his original confidence throughout 
the story and growing in his faith in Jesus throughout the story. But Jesus doesn't make it easy for him. In verse 48, Jesus rebukes him, or at least them, and he tests him. This is something that Jesus often does. Jesus is always testing the genuineness of our faith. A classic example of this is the story of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7. And in Mark 7, 24 to 30, a Gentile woman, a Syrophoenician by birth, comes to Jesus and falls down in his feet and he, she begs him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And how... Does Jesus respond? He tells her, let the children be fed first. That means the children of Israel. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus calls this Gentile woman a dog. He says, it's not right for me to give you what belongs to the children of Israel. Because you're a dog, a Gentile. Sounds mean, doesn't it? Jesus was testing her faith. And she passed the test, if you remember. She answered him, yes, Lord, yet. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then Jesus said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. First, Jesus tested her faith. And then he rewarded her faith and strengthened her faith through his word and through Answering her prayer. The nobleman from Capernaum is also being tested. He's testing the genuineness of his faith. First Peter 3, 6 and 7 say that our various trials, the various things that Jesus puts us through, test the genuineness of our faith so that our genuine faith may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests the genuineness of our faith by putting us through the fire the way gold is refined in a fire. And then Peter goes on to say in that same passage in verses 8 to 10 in 1 Peter 3, though you have not seen him, the essence of faith, believing what you do not see, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When God tests your faith, when he puts you through the fire, do you demand to see something, a sign, some kind of evidence before you believe? Or do you love him and believe in him? And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, even though you can't see him. Even though you can't figure out what's going on. What he's up to in your life. Christ's rebuke of the sign seekers does not stop this man from pleading with Jesus. He's passionate and he's persistent in his prayer. He doesn't even respond directly to Christ's rebuke. Do you see that? In verse 48, perhaps because he doesn't think it applies to him. He does love Jesus. He does trust in Jesus. He believes in Jesus, even though Jesus hasn't performed the sign yet. 
So he pleads again in verse 49. Sir, come down before my child dies. And then Jesus says in verse 50, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. See the emphasis on the word here again, just as up in the story with the Samaritans. Jesus believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, your son lives. And he inquired in verse 52. What hour this happened? When did he get better? And they said yesterday at the seventh hour. And the father knew, verse 53, that this was the hour Jesus said, your son lives. And when when his servant said that, verse 53 says that he believed. So his faith is growing. The second time it says he believed. He came to Jesus in belief, but then he believed again. And then the third time here in verse 53, he believed again when he heard what the servant said. And then his whole household believed. This is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. We see something of the spirit of the Syrophoenician woman in this man, don't we? He won't give up. He won't go away. He's passionate and persistent in prayer, as Jesus wants us to be. And he knows Jesus is his last hope, as Jesus wants us to believe and think. So he cries out for mercy. Come, now, he's dying, please. Now, notice in verse 50 that Jesus doesn't exactly do what the man asks. He does something even better, but he doesn't do exactly what he asks. Jesus doesn't go up to Capernaum to heal the child. He doesn't give him that assurance of going with him. Knowing that it's going to be okay when he gets back because there Jesus is. As long as Jesus is with me and we're going back, I I think he's going to follow through on this thing. Instead, he says, just go. I'm staying here. You go. Your son lives. You just have to trust me. You have to believe my word. So Jesus partially grants his request, but he partially denies it. He pushes him to greater faith at this part of the story. Some commentators say that this is when his true faith kicked in. I don't know that we can know that. It seems to me that the genuineness of his faith was tested, tried, and and shown to be true, and that we can read that back into the beginning of it as well. He grants the healing, but he refuses to go to Capernaum. And here's the thing to notice about verse 50. Jesus did not give him a sign. In a sense, he did. He he promised him a sign. He promised him something that he would be able to see. Just as Jesus has promised us something that we'll be able to see one day. But he didn't give him a sign right there. He didn't go with him and ensure that he would do the sign before he left him. He left him with... A word, not a sign. Is the word of Christ enough for this man? Is the word of Christ enough for you? Well, we find out that it's enough for this man. The rest of verse 50 says he believed. He went home. No arguing. No more pleading. Just believing. It's the only thing he had to do. Now, you've heard it said... That seeing is believing. 
But for this man, believing was seeing. Jesus spoke, the man believed. And one of the fascinating parts of this story that I'm not totally sure what to do with is that the man took his time returning home. I'm not sure that's what I would have done. Verse 52 indicates that he took two days to return. And the text doesn't have to tell us this. John didn't have to mention this, but he does. Because when he meets his servants, they say it happened yesterday. It's not that far. They could, he could have made it home that afternoon. Maybe four or five hour journey if he had he'd set his mind to it. The only explanation I can think of for this is that he was resting in the promise of Christ. And the text wants us to know this. It stands out to me. Jesus said it. The man believed it. And he rested in it. He didn't have to rush home the way he rushed to Jesus the day before. When Jesus said it, it was as if the man had already seen it with his own eyes anyway. This is just a normal journey back home. Because for him, believing was seeing. Just as it was for all of those saints in Hebrews 11. It says that Abraham saw the day of Christ. It, he, he didn't see it with these eyeballs, but he, he was filled with joy because he saw it by faith. Never think that if you could just see more evidence with your eyeballs, these eyeballs in your head, you would have more faith. It doesn't work that way. You don't see in order to believe. You believe in order to see. When you believe, the eyes of your heart can see. Remember what Abraham, father of the faith, told the rich man in Luke 16. The rich man was in hell. and He was begging Abraham to send him back to his brothers, his father's house, so he could tell them about hell to repent. But Abraham tells the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. They have my word, scriptures. Let your brothers listen to them. But the rich man says to Abraham, no, you don't understand, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Sure of it. Abraham said to him, they don't listen to Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham knew from experience that faith does not spring from sight. No amount of evidence can produce faith. You don't see in order to believe. You believe in order to see. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is full confidence in the things hoped for. And absolute certainty about things unseen. Faith sees the unseen. The nobleman took Jesus at his word and believed him. He rested in Christ and his word. Jesus tested his faith, but then Jesus strengthened his faith by giving him a promise. Does the word of God, do the promises of scripture strengthen your faith? When you hear the words of Jesus, do they build up your faith? Do the scriptures and the preaching of the word of God 
inspire you, enliven you? Does hearing the voice of your shepherd produce faith and love and hope for things unseen? You can trust Jesus. You can take him at his every word. When you bring your petitions to him, you can know that he hears your request, that he loves you, and you can rest in his absolutely perfect wisdom, though you don't understand it. You can believe his promises without reservation. And I want to leave you with two of the most important promises that you must remember any time you approach Jesus the way this nobleman approached Jesus. When you approach the throne of grace in prayer. The first promise is from Romans 8, 28. We know that all things. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Apart from faith, this promise just seems trite. It really doesn't make sense. But seen through the eyes of faith, this promise burst into life in the midst of pain because your eyes of faith, the eyeballs in your head, the eyes of faith can see and believe your trials and your troubles and your disappointments are all working together and resulting in your good. Second promise is what Jesus says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul kept asking Jesus to remove that thorn from his flesh. But Jesus didn't take away this trial. He didn't answer the prayer the way Paul was praying it exactly. Instead, he told Paul, he answered it in a better way. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And this is what Paul said in response. He amened that. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Each of you is on a faith journey. When you get to the end of your life, everyone will know whether your journey was one of genuine faith or not. Your faith is genuine. You'll respond to God's test with more faith. Jesus will test the genuineness of your faith. That's a certainty. But he will also strengthen the genuineness of your faith through his word. As you hear his word and believe it, the faith that God has given you will give birth to more faith. This is how God brings you to full maturity in Christ. So when you come to Jesus with something urgent, make sure you're passionate and persistent, like the nobleman, like the Syrophoenician woman, because Jesus hears fervent and persistent prayers of faith. But just as important, maybe more important, Don't forget the promises from Romans 8.28 and 2 Corinthians 12.9. God may not always give you exactly what 
you're asking for, as was the case with Paul. He was persistent. He was passionate. He didn't get exactly what he asked for. But his promises to Paul, his promises to you in Romans 8, 28 and 2 Corinthians 12, 9 are always sure, never failing. God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. All things will work together for your good because you love him and because you've been called by him according to his good purposes. So will you trust Jesus and love him even though he doesn't always do everything in detail that you're asking of him? Will you believe him and take up your cross and follow him on the basis of his word alone? Is your faith sign-based or savior-based? Let's pray. Father, help us to trust in you. Strengthen our faith in Jesus and in your promises and in your wisdom, in your word. Help us to respond even this day to what you've said to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.